Hey, hello buddies, fellow Franco fans, fans of the Church of Uncle Jess, that'd be a cool church. I am your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions, Sacramento-based filmmaking company. Today I come to you from the last cell on the left on this episode 23. We do 99 Women with Bob Moritz as my guest reviewer. This is uh, film number 20 from Jess Franco. Uh, This is a big film for him, a very successful film. That um, There were many prison movies before this, but this was a big women in prison. There were many women in prison movies before this as well, all the way back to the 30s, 40s and that. But um, this is uh, one that really started that whole subgenre of the uh, tortured women in prison and that turned into the women in prison movies and that turned into the uh, non-sploitation, the Nazi exploitation, um, pretty much a lot of the same formula on that, you know, recycled, recycled, turned into 80s women in prison movies. And nowadays we have the Orange is the New Black and all that deal. So, but uh, yeah, so Uncle Jess was definitely one of the uh, pioneers to bridge over the different generations of prison movies and create his own little stamp on it. Um, this is um, a um, Harry Allen Towers was the producer on this. Um, so yeah, we do a lot of Urban C. Dietrich ones, but this is also we do a lot of uh, Harry Allen Towers. So let's give you some information on this. We're going to give you the film title, the number which we did, the credits, actors, producers, dates of filming, all that good stuff, and talk about a little bit. Um, we did the review before. Uh, we did the review portion first uh, with Bob. It was my first time doing an interview with him. He's a fellow filmmaker and has been doing it for quite a while. Uh, he's a very humble man, has done quite a bit of work, and... Um, him and I talked a lot about film and filmmaking and everything, and it ran quite long. So this portion is going to be shorter. Usually it's about a half hour, the introduction. I'm going to try to make this a little shorter. So um, also, too, on um, Murderous Passions by Stephen Thrower, a few of the things that he wrote about Bob and I talked about already before reading this. So it was kind of cool, the themes about um, our feelings about some of the lesbianism and rape mentality of the film and uh, how backwards and off it was and he kind of wrote a lot of the same thing so so off we go 99 women uh spain west germany italy uk and usa production 1968 original theatrical title and country of origin 99 mujeres 99 mujeres from spain uh germany uh, der herz todd hot death um, Italy, 99 Doni, D-O-N-N-E. Alternative titles, Les Brulantes, French Hardcore Theatrical, The Burning Women, which I have that cut as well. I have the, um, I watched the West German uh, one, the Blue Underground deal, and then also I uh, have the Burning Women, the French Hardcore cut, which isn't very good. Um, the f- German director cut's the best way to go. Uh, the 99 Verhoeven, uh, Netherlands theatrical. Uh, the USA TV edit of this is called Island of Despair. 
Uh, that's interesting. I haven't seen the USA TV edit of this. That must have been in the uh, AIP package that they got with like the Fu Manchu films and uh, Feature Women and stuff like that. Um, 99 Mulheres, uh, Brazilian theatrical, Portuguese DVD. Production companies, Hesperia Films from Madrid. From Munich, we have Corona Film Production. From Rome, we have uh, Center Prodicini Associates. From London, we have the uh, Towers of London Films Limited, Harry Allen Towers. And from Los Angeles, we have the Commonwealth United Productions Incorporated. So yeah, I remember before we did Harry Allen Towers, he was a guy that, unlike Dirk Dietrich that used his own money, Towers was more into getting other producers' monies and kind of facilitating the deals and kind of putting his name on it above the others. And But in this one, he threw down as well from the um, uh, Towers of London's films. So uh, let's see the timeline on this. The first shooting period, which they shot during the break from uh, Girl from Rio, was uh, f- between February and March of 68. Uh, second shooting period afterwards, they jumped in on June of 1968. Uh, they got a certificate in January of 69. Uh, screening attended by Variety was January 31st, 1969. The USA premiere in San Francisco was March 5th of 1969. The West Germany premiere was March 14th, 69. Um, it was rejected by the UK BB British Film Board Film Commission on the BBFC on uh, April 11th of 69. Uh, played Madrid in June 16th, 69. Barcelona, July 9th, 69. Italy and Rome, uh, July 18th, 69. London played in the Cinema Club distribution, uh, kind of the film clubs. Even though it was rejected, it played in clubs with Venus and Furs on January 7th, 1970. Uh, played Brazil, January 10th, 70. In Belgium, in Brussels, September 9th, 74 four years later, actually five years after the 69 premiere. Uh, French Visa as Las Berlantes, November 8th, 74, and France as Las Berlantes, November 27th, 74. Yeah, it's five years later, the French hardcore cut. Uh, the different theatrical running times, the Spanish version, which is a cut of a lot of the... Um, uh, a lot of the sex footage, or the not sex footage, but even the um, lesbian angles and the uh, flashback sequences, and that the Spanish version that's seventy-eight minutes. Uh, the West German one, which I watched, is one hundred eight minutes. Uh, the Italian version, one hundred eight minutes. France, the hardcore version, the Los Blantes with the hardcore inserts, that's actually down it to ninety-four minutes. It's really fast. Um, UK version, all the cuts is the shortest one at 70 minutes, which is shorter than the Spanish, Spanish. Interesting. Uh, USA t- is a 84 minutes. Um, that's the shorter one. The cast, um, Maria Schnell, superintendent, Leon Carroll, Mercedes McCambridge, superintendent, Thelma Diaz, Luciana Pelusi as Natalie Mendoza, prisoner 98, Herbert Long, governor Santos, Maria Rome, Marie, prisoner 99, Alisa Montes, Helga, Prisoner 97. Rosalba Neri, Zoe, Prisoner 76. Rosalba Neri is really good in this. Uh, I'm going to take a minute to talk about her. She uh, is a cool Eurostar. She is uh, probably like, I mean, she isn't the lead heel because that's Mercedes McCambridge and Herbert Lom, but she's like uh, the mean queen of the cell. Um, and uh, she did four films with Jess Franco. She did Lucky the Inscrutable was the first. 99 Women's the second. Then after this, she did uh, 
Marquita Saw's Justine um, played Florette. And then finally, the last film she did for Franco was the Castle Fu Manchu. She was Lisa in that, 1969, which was uh, actually after this. Um, so yeah, so she did those four. And then uh, she uh, did a lot of cool other things. She did uh, Lady Frankenstein. She actually was Lady Frankenstein, Tanya Frankenstein in 71. And uh, let's see, she did Devil's Lover in 72. And then she did Amok. She's really cool in that. She's uh, Fairly Granger's quote-unquote girlfriend in 72. Um, and then uh, let's see, French Sex Murders in 72. Um, Devil's Wedding Night in 73. And uh, yeah, she did a lot of cool stuff. The Arena in 74. Girl in Room 2A, she's in that. And uh, yeah, she did a lot of cool stuff. Gallo stuff. And she's a cool actress. So, but uh, yeah, so she's really good in, uh, in this film. And uh, yeah, she's my favorite probably in this film. Uh, Valentina Godoy is Rosilia, Prisoner 81. And let's see who else do we have in this. Uh, Jess Franco is the second man in the bowler hat flashback, and he also plays officer on a boat. He plays two roles in this. And let's see, we have uh, director Jess Franco, story Jess Franco. Screenplay, Jess Franco, Cardo Fada, and Milo G. Conchia. Dialogue, Anaya Corvin, Ornella Zanelli, Italian Prince. Editors, Bruno Matai is one of the editors on this. That's very cool. Music by Bruno Nicolet. Produced by Harry Allen Towers. Executive producer, Luis Lasso Moreno. Production managers, Francis Romero. Uh, Mario Damiani. Camera assistant, Ricardo Damiani. U.S. version, post-production supervisor Robert S. Elson, uncredited the song The Day I Was Born, lyrics by Audrey Norris Staten, Spanish producer Carlos Corret, Italian producer Alexander Helcon. Production notes, The Girl from Rio completed principal photography in Rio de Janeiro in mid-February 1968, a week earlier than expected. This was inconvenient, as a certain amount of material still needed to be shot at the Rio Carnival, during the weekend immediately prior to Ash Wednesday, i.e. the 24th to the 26th of February 1968. Jess Franco and Harry Allen Towers decided that instead of letting the crew hang around for a week on full pay, they would conceive a entirely new film to make use of that time. Written over a weekend, 99 women began shooting on that Monday. In the week, fully one-third of it was shot. I'm sorry. In that week... Fully one-third of it was shot, giving us some idea of the incredible speed at which Franco was working. After the Rio Carnival was over, with the final shots for the girl from Rio in the bag, Franco and his crew flew to Spain to shoot the rest of 99 Women while already prepping and shooting another film, Justine. Wow, that's really fucking cool. Yeah, that's the way I always want to be, man, is just to be like in that zone, have it in the pocket, and just go all the way through. It says, uh... Review. Just give you a little bit of this one. Shorter than normal. Well, here we go. Prepare yourselves. Hide your contraband where the sun don't shine. We're about to get banged up. 99 Women is the first stretch we'll be spending inside the genre that Franco made his own. And like unrepentant career criminals, we'll be back many times over the next 20 years. 99 Women is Franco's first women in prison or WIP film and marks the beginning of a journey that will take us into the icy cruelty of films like Barbed Wire Dolls, 1975, Greta, House Without Men, 1976, and Frauen, F uh, Women in Sublock 9, 1977. 
Yes, there had been films before set in women's prisons, but nothing quite as overheated, salacious, and cynical as this. 99 Women's somber tone, alongside a pruent obsession with prison lesbianism and semi-naked women in distress, marks a shift in Franco's sensibilities, from the hallucinatory modernism of the Aquila films to the dark-lured, dark-hued, pain-inflicted horrors of 1970s and beyond. In Succubus, Franco embraced the sexy, the strange, and the poetic. In 99 Women, he turned to sleazy and sadomasochistic pleasures, without the velvet of fantasy to soften the edges. Songbirds in cages, stuffed birds in glass dioramas. These are a few of my favorite things. No. Uh, a book on Hitler's rise to power on the desk of the prison superintendent. That The art direction in 99 Women is nothing if not emphatic. This is a study of the corruption that comes from absolute power, of those in authority who cling to brutality and defiance of all attempts to soften their methods. Mind you, it's also a sexy pot boiler about chicks in the slammer with ripped clothing, cats fights, lesbianisms, flagellation, rapes, and lots of emotional trauma thrown in for good measure. So, something for everybody. Ultimately, however, it's all for laughs. The worldview here is one of total cynicism. It's expressed in the way one of the runaway girls sees the jungle rape of Rosa as an advantage, slowing down the pursuit and helping her to escape. It's there, too, in the satisfied smirk with which the prisoner best placed in the prison hierarchy, Zoe, watches Goody Two-Shoes' governess, Leone, leave the prison in abject humiliation, roundly beaten by the machinations of Superintendent Diaz and Governor Santos. That the cynicism of the characters is shared by the filmmakers is regrettable, but it didn't do the film any harm at the box office. 99 Women was a huge success when released, spending several weeks at the top of Variety film chart in 1969. Franco on screen. Franco is seen in the flashback to Maria's gang rape, and in the Spanish version plays a soldier arriving by boat at the end of the film. Cast and crew. Mercedes McCambridge as Superintendent Diaz plays her role to the hilt, coming off like a combination of Adolf Hitler and Betty Davis. Some of you argued that she's over the top. Franco himself mentions that she liked a drink or two while on duty. I personally think she's magnificent and in her own eccentric way is actually giving us something believable. A woman so accustomed to absolute power that a challenge to her authority drives her to madness. Music. The insanely catchy title tune, The Day I Was Born, is a classic belter written by Bruno Nicolai with lyrics by Audrey Nora Staten and sung by Barbara McNair. That's a good song. Yeah, we watched it and uh, had that had that kind of Tarantino feel to it later, you could tell. Uh, locations. The jungle scenes were shot just outside Rio de Janeiro at a national park near to the Copacabana beach during downtime on the girl from Rio shoot. The locations look suspiciously like those used in the blood of Fu Manchu, so it's probably the same park. Prison interiors and exteriors were shot afterwards, chiefly in Alicante Santa Barbara Castle, which further studio scenes added in Madrid and Rome. Variety were unimpressed with the film itself, calling it turgidly written, schematically directed, and exaggeratedly acted. But the reviewer did comment with some admiration that it marked a new step forward in the use of sexploitational material in mainstream cinema. Few pictures, if any, have combined elements in the manner of 99 women. Leaving aside the sexploiter subtrade, sex elements have historically entered regular commercial fare via class product, then later filtered down to routine releases. In perspective of today's market, 
The picture on hand has all the cast, story, and production attributes of a second feature, except for that liberal dose of Frank and sex. The New York Times were not so nuanced. Despite the appearance of such professionals as Mercedes McCambridge, Maria Schell, and Herbert Lom, and hints of sexuality, a discriminant moviegoer suffers more than any of the harried inmates in 99 Women. All right, so, yeah, I was saying that this introduction is going to be shorter because the review portion is quite a bit longer. Um, so, yeah, um, I watched the Blue Underground DVD, the uh, director's cut, the West German cut, like I had mentioned before. Uh, you can get that. Uh, there's, I think on the Blu-ray now has that with the uh, all the different kind of cuts together, the um, hardcore footage, too, as, like, deleted scenes. Uh our mission statement here is always to praise in memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to uh, new eyes and to new ears. Uh, please download the shows. Please subscribe. Please tell all your friends. Um, please rate on your platforms if available. Uh, you can check us out at FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. If you want to send us any emails or suggestions or questions, I'm always uh, available and always answering your questions, and uh, I love the correspondence from my state, California, all the way around the world. We get fans literally listening from all different countries. we got like 20 different countries that listen to the show, so that's awesome, and download it weekly, so that's beautiful. Uh, still doing shows on Wednesday, might be picking up an extra day here or there. I've uh, been cranking out a bunch of episodes, so I might... Uh, do a few two weeks to kind of like uh, push out a few of the episodes quicker because I got right now I'm sitting on about seven that are completed so um, that way might maybe break it down a little bit but uh, we'll see how that goes um, if everybody keeps listening I'll keep putting out more episodes quicker maybe do two weeks like I said so that's cool that's a little incentive to get us more people listening um, let's see what else we want to do I think there's a trailer for this I'm sure I'll put the trailer in Knock that out, and then you'll have all that going on. Um, check out our Facebook page. Check out our Instagram page, the Franco Observer Podcast. Find us there. Add us. Get a hold of us. Talk to us. Tell all your friends. All that good stuff. All right. Hope you like 99 Women. We sure did. Talk to you later. Adios. and Isabel. And now... Ninety-nine women without men. Warm flesh and blood behind cold iron bars. Driven beyond the limits of endurance. Forced to perform degrading acts which strip them of all humanity. You have enjoyed yourself this evening. A little blonde, darling. Was a good little darling. Starring Maria Schell, Mercedes McCambridge, Luciana Paluzzi, Herbert Love. No name, only numbers. No future, only the past. No hope, only despair. 
and a desperate instinct for survival. about about his work i get it you know i get like the auteur focusing everything and making everything into the the perfect thing that it can be but i mean franco loved making movies and you could see it in his movies and he just lets it all fly he doesn't care and i have a lot of i re- i think that's like, a, like a, a refreshing way to look at it you know even though he's been you know he, like what 50 60 years ago this guy started you know um but just this nitpicky meticulousness, I don't think serves the art form uh, to grow, you know? No, exactly. Like we were watching, um, uh, what was it? We were watching um, Blue Rita yesterday or on a Thursday. And, you know, we were talking like about the special effects and that. Like, you know, there's a scene where they're in like this cell and they have this little panel and it's like a little glass bubble with a couple LEDs and they got a couple switches that they're pulling and really, you know, it's like, well, people can go, oh, that looks really hokey or that looks cheesy or something. But it's like, well, who the fuck cares? Like, if you were going to spend like $500 on some nice setup, like, why does that better than something? It still gets across the point of what you're doing. And if it's a device to further push along the story, who the fuck cares? That's just your own, you know, being snobby like you're saying and that shit. And that's really kind of open lies to even some of the ways I think of how I used to look at things. And as an independent filmmaker you kind of go through things and you're like, well, shit, you kind of have these flashbulb moments where it's all just bullshit. If you kind of buy into it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. It's cool. So this will be fun. Yeah. And I like that. We're, I like that. We're both filmmakers in the same kind of field where it's underground, you know, it's, it's, it's like the spirit of just Franco. I feel, you know, what oh, yeah. you and I both do We're we're cobbling it together and we're trying to make it work. We're trying to make it as good as it can be with the resources that we have, you know? And, yeah. and I like that. I like seeing those, that, that, friction you know between what you want and what you can really achieve you know yeah and it's really like what you can like and and even just the happy accidents and being open to things and being open to like create on the fly and to like progress your thing that if you were locked into a budget of a certain frame or something where you couldn't do those extra things and that really fucks you if you can't do that stuff you know yeah yeah cool Hello, Franco fans. Uh, welcome once again to the Franco Observer Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions. And uh, today we are on episode 23, where we're doing the film 99 Women. Uh, and that is film number 20 from Mr. Jess Franco, uh, which was done right after uh, The Girl from Rio, which was film 19, and then Blood of Fu Manchu, film 18. Um, Today I have a special guest with me, a fellow filmmaker, Mr. Bob Moritz. Um, Bob is uh, is a filmmaker, and uh, I'd like to have him give his introduction to give it justice. And over to you, Bob. Yeah, hey. 
I'm I'm Bob. I uh, I, be, I started making movies back in uh, uh, gosh, I, I, you know, with my dad, Super Eight Millimeter, you know, and and it just kind of stuck with me uh, as a, as a joyful hobby. You know, I always kind of see it as a, as a hobby. Uh, and I see myself as an amateur, you know, because it is love. You know, I don't get, I don't get, I've got an Etsy website, uh, where I sell my movies and I make a little bit of money sometimes, you know, but definitely not enough, you know, it's more like beer money or gas money. Uh, and you know, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love it, you know, and it is, it is the, the most fun I can have with my pants on and, um, I, I, so, so, so growing up over the years, yeah, I'm also a product of the, um, whatchamacallit, the, I'm of the generation of the, where the VCR was the babysitter and, uh, my video store, I had my, yeah, exactly. I was there for that. And my dad always loved uh, technology and stuff. So we had, you know, he spent like, I don't know, like 2000, we didn't have money, but he spent like, you know, 2000 bucks on one of those big VCRs and it was the most mind blowing thing than that I could tape stuff off of TV and just kind of growing up during that boom, you had access to all these really crazy grindhouse movies, you know, just getting released on uh, VHS, which really opened my world. Cause before that it was just TV, which had a lot of good stuff at the time with the programming, with the shock theater and creature features and all that kind of stuff, you know, but uh, once I discovered video, it was a whole other, like there was some really wild stuff out there. And um, I remember with just Franco, uh, there was a, a video cassette of Jack the Ripper starring Klaus Kinski. And I knew of Klaus Kinski because my father showed me the, um, what should we call it? The Sergio Leone Westerns. Uh, and I knew who he was and he scared me. He was terrifying. And I'm like, wow, Klaus Kinski is Jack the Ripper. That sounds amazing. But I was too scared to like uh, rent the video cassette. Eventually I did. And it was the most disappointing piece of junk. I mean, I hated it so much. And like, I was so upset that, uh, Frank, I mean, that uh, Kinski's voice was dubbed over by the, I mean, it, it was horrible. Yeah, it's still um, yeah it's very, I, I appreciate it now, but with, as a, as a, like, I don't know, 11, 12 year old kid, you know, who wanted something, uh, you know, transgressive and, 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 you know, Jack the Ripper, it's Jack the Ripper. This should be, this should be, but it wasn't. And, um, and I, that kind of slanted me against Franco, for many years. And uh, that's why I, w I wanted to do 99 Women because uh, when I was living in Portland, Oregon, we had this amazing, uh, it's still there, um, uh, Movie Madness. Like the most amazing video store ever, video rental store ever. And it's, I mean, they have everything in the world. They have like out of, they rent out out of print criterion collections, you know, where you have to deposit like 200 bucks in case you lose it, but you get it back, you know, so they, wow. and they have props, you know, they have like the gun, you know, uh, William Holden, Holden's gun from um, Wild Bunch. Somebody stole that thing out of the store wow. one day. It was like big news. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. And they had a Franco collection there that was like this this i mean it was just like a whole shelf and i'm like my okay i gotta i gotta give franco another chance you know and i had friends you know like, like you and and me who made movies and are into movies uh who are big fans of his and i'm like what the hell i'll give this a shot and i want i picked first one i picked was 99 women and um 
I was like, holy crap. Franco's a great, he's a great director. I mean, he is a great director. I can't, you know, and, uh, and then I learned more about him. And then, and then uh, he's, he's very near and dear to my heart as a filmmaker and artist. I mean, because he himself said that he made, he emboldened me to declare with, with uh, pride that I'm an amateur, you know, uh, even though he made money on making movies, he did it out of love. And I'm like, okay, all right. That's, you know, I don't mind that, you know, I can be honest and transparent that, you know, Hey, not a lot of people want to see what I do, but I'm going to keep doing it because I love it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and really it's, it's almost out of that expression and that desire to put it out. And, you know, you have a certain numbers and it's like, it's almost a badge because like any subject, even like just Franco compared to say, if I did a podcast about, some top 20 TV show or the Kardashians or something, there would be a lot more people that would listen to it than about something about Jess Franco, but you have whatever your passion is, your subject, your films or whatever. And of course you push that through, you know, and, and that's like what he did and, and what we do. It's like, you know, and that's, so I think with Franco too, I kind of come from the same background as you, where a lot of my friends kind of made fun of his movies and thought they were jokey and that he was an amateur, like you're saying, but in a negative sense. And like, but then I got into him through um, like a Christopher Lee and then just collecting all Christopher Lee's films. So then I would pick up the Fu Manchu films and the bloody judge. And I kind of liked those. And I was like, okay, you know, and they always stuck there, but until I became a filmmaker and later on, that's when I really appreciated him. And I think you kind of have to grow into his films or come at it from a different place than just to be some asshole film viewer that just wants to think they know it all or, or they know something cool or whatever, you know, but I think everybody that really loves film as a, as an art form comes around to Franco sooner or later, you know, it's just kind of the way it is. Also one quick question I want to ask you, we were talking about video stores. Uh, my first video store was um, Mr. Dickens video in Sacramento on Elkhorn. Uh, what was your first video store? My first video store, it was before there was even video stores. They're on the El Camino in Redwood. I grew up in Redwood City, California. Okay. Time at best by government test. Uh, and it was. It was always like 70 degrees. It was great, you know. Um, different, though. You know, now Silicon Valley, it's like a totally different world than when I grew up there. But uh, on the El Camino, right on the corner of El Camino and Jefferson, there was Anderson's. And it was like a... a they sold cameras, they sold VCRs, they sold stereos, you know, that kind of stuff. And there was like a little nook in the back corner um, where there was like a, a, a glass table. And under that table, there were like five movies. There was Superman, uh, I think King Kong. Um, and then when Star Wars came out, that was like, I mean, that was huge, you know. But I mean, that that's, they had like five movies and it cost something like, 10 bucks for like seven days or you could get it for like five bucks for three days. Um, and it was, it was, it was kind of a big deal, but, uh, uh, the, the owner of the shop, his name was Bob Israel. And he was like this, um, he was just a really cool guy. He was like this tiny, tiny little fat guy, you know? And he was, uh, he was really excited about this video stuff. It was brand new. So he, he was always interested in what I, and what I wanted to watch, you know. Um, and then over the years, that little corner of the store took over the damn store, 
You know what right. I mean? Because like all the hi-fi equipment, the TV, all that stuff went by the wayside. And it was, uh, it just turned into a really great video rental store. Um, so that was my first one. And the other one I had that I loved was, uh, this shows you how old I am. It was called Video 2000. Okay, because it was like the 80s and 2000 seemed like so far away, you know, but yeah. uh, Anderson's and Video 2000, they, they changed, Anderson's changed to the movie groove. They, they named it the movie groove once it became like nothing but um, video. But yeah, that was a special place. Yeah, because you're about seven months older than me, so we're pretty close to the same age. And uh, yeah, so I was like with me, like it was about 82, 83. And I remember the first ones were uh, for us, for me, was uh, Rocky II, Star Trek II. That was like some of the first ones. And we had the giant case that the VCR came in with a big handle and you take it home. And this was like Mr. Dickens, like um, Charles Dickens, you know, it was Mr. Dickens' bookstore. It was bookstores and some video. And then when the boom started the video expanded and they took over at the place next door and then they put all the videos there and, you know, and then that took off and they're on and they're forth into the eighties. So, so. so for you, it was like, you're also renting the, the VCR itself, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We would get it for like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then take it back at like six o'clock or whatever, you know, and it was like 30, 40 bucks or something, maybe, you know, twenty nine ninety nine or 39, whatever it was. You get like four or five movies, and then you know you watch the same movie twice or whatever, you know, to get your money's worth, you know. No, crazy. I mean, imagine that in 2021, like go into a, a video rental store and and like they're like renting this huge. I mean, that one of those things I, it was like 30 pounds or like I mean, yeah. it was heavy, you know, that's uh, hilarious. Yeah, it was like a giant, like plastic briefcase that you know, almost like a film, uh. A briefcase that you carry you know it's just real big like that and bulky and heavy and yeah it was totally totally trippy so but yeah it's funny and of course we're old jason we're old but hey man <laughs> it means that we just grew up liking the cool stuff so you know and speaking well, we of cool got lucky stuff, there there was good stuff i mean it was it was kind of i do appreciate that time you know and i'm thankful for it you know and i think there's good and bad stuff in every you know like i my friend uh um, his dad would talk about how there was nothing around and they just ride their bikes all day you know that was awesome for someone born in the 30s you know but for us in the 70s we got the the video boom the yeah. drive-in too right yeah and we see a lot of things come and go just like every generation does from the theaters, the drive-ins, to the video stores, to the DVD stores, to the streaming video, to now, you know, uh, ways to make movies from doing the VHS cameras on your on your shoulder now to the little handheld deals in your phones. And that's a huge thing within like 10 years or whatever that was, 15 years, you know. And that's crazy, crazy advancement, you know. So, but that's good too because that makes us fucking have cheaper equipment that we could go out and do our things and gives us less ex- less excuses besides life to like make our films and do our things, you know. But, yeah, and good quality, you know. Like, yeah, uh, I was hated. I was hated how when I made my movies on the on the big VHS, it looked like crap to me. It looked like crap because it didn't look like Stanley Kubrick or right. Return of the Jedi or whatever. But but now that aesthetic is something that people really revere and really want to. They get excited, you know. Like I remember seeing the opening credits for that most recent American Horror Story, it's a VHS. Right, you know, right. And it's like holy crap! This is like people like this, you know. 
so weird. So weird. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool. It's like you're always – and people that do it, and if you're in that zone, you're always beho- you're always before your time, and you're always appreciated after your time. So you just have to keep continuing and to keep doing it so the time catches up with you, and then you can, like, ride that through, you know. And people give up or jump out, and it's like if you jump out, you can't hit that point, and you're – you know, and the point gets closer and closer. So that's the way I always just try to look at it, you know, from a positive sense. No, you're right. You're right, or you write it out and it never happens and you die. But guess what? You die in obscurity, but guess what? You spent a life doing something you love, you know? Oh, yeah. And not everybody can say that. And I can look back and, like, like say, the last couple of years, I kind of had the realization that, like, uh, that like when I was making my films and stuff, like, those were the good times, and you kind of don't know you're going through the good times when you're going through them, you know? And then you look back, and you're like, wow, I was doing this, this, and this, and you kind of just – kind of take it for granted because you're just doing it and you're not really thinking about it, you know? And when you don't think about it, that's when you just, you know, react and do things, you know? But so. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. The movie with uh, Lynn Lowry, didn't you? Yeah, you she was in uh, Mondo Sacramento 2 for me. Yeah, yeah, she did uh, Dorothea That's Valente. awesome. Yeah, that's like my highlight for me. And I was like, wow, the same actress that worked with David Cronenberg, George Romero, uh, Paul Schrader, and many, many others, you know? Radley Metzger, you know, like shit, that's so cool. Yeah. So, so this one now we're going to talk about is 99 Women by Mr. Jess Franco. Uh, I'm going to give the plot synopsis of this. Uh, let's see. Marie is incarcerated in the Castillo de la Muerte prison along with Nathalie, a junkie forced to go cold turkey, and Helga, a hardened cynic. One, um, on arrival, she is given a prison uniform and a number instead of a name. 99. The prison is run by Superintendent Diaz, a cruel female warden who favors extreme prison discipline. She gloats over the suffering of others and pimps the girls to Governor Santos, the equally corrupt governor of the neighboring male prison. The first night, as Marie lies in her cell, she hears Nathalie's moans of pain and realizes that she's close to death from drug withdrawal. From drug withdrawal. She calls for help, but no one responds. Instead, Nathalie is left to die, and Maria is punished for causing trouble. Nathalie's death arouses the suspicion of a doctor sent to look into the high number of fatalities at the prison. The government responds by sending an inspector, Leonie Carroll, to observe Diaz's methods. Carroll is genuinely concerned for the prisoners and tries to improve their treatment. Maria is raped by her cellmate Zoe, while Governor Santos watches avidly. However, the two women make friends again, explaining to one another how they came to be in prison. Marie killed a rapist in self-defense, yet no one believed her, while Zoe was goaded to murder by the mean treatment of her lesbian boss, Grace. Rosa, a friendly inmate, intent on escaping, invites Marie and Zoe to join her. The three succeed in getting out, but thanks to their weakened state of distress, the steamy jungle conditions, some dangerous wildlife, and the unwanted attentions of sex-starved escapees from the nearby male prison, their situation lurches from bad to worse. So, um, Bob, what did you think about this movie? Oh, I loved it. I think it's a wonderful film uh, in many respects. Uh, it's an interesting uh, film if you look at it in the timeline of women in prison movies. You know, I mean, yeah, they kind of started in the 50s with the juvenile delinquent motion pictures, movies like Caged. You know, um, but then it's uh, it also, uh, uh, you know, the snake pit is kind of like a women in prison film, even though it's like a mental institution. But uh, it wasn't until, you know, the the 60s and really the 70s when uh, it became like uh, 
uh, they started utilizing more prurient elements, you know, uh, being more shocking and, and uh, excessive and violent uh, before sort of like social commentary. And I think uh, 99 Women is interesting because it's relatively tame, you know, compared to most of the 70s, 80s women in prison films I've seen. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the lesbianism is, is in full, you know, but it's not, it's not really used as, as like, ooh, this is shocking. It's just kind of like this more European sensibility where this is just natural. This is normal. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not weird. It's not something that, ah! And um, so it wasn't, it's not as graphic. It's not as out of control. it's got like these big name stars. I mean, Oscar winning, I mean, Mercedes Cambridge. I mean, she to me is like the shining star in in this film. I can't believe her, you know? I I mean, just every, every time she's on the screen, I'm like, oh my, and she's the, she's the uh, mean warden. She's not one of the sexy ladies. You know what I mean? And she's just so captivating and uh, everything. I love how there are these, um, Franco had because she acts with her whole body and she's so small. Um, and there's all these shots where her body is just so small in the shot, but she's taking up the whole space with her, with the things that she's doing and her, her vocalizations. I mean, I, I'm in love with that woman. I think she's incredible. And, and Herbert Lom and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, speaking yeah. of her vocalizations, about three years later, she would do the voice of the demon for The Exorcist which was really yeah. cool. I was thinking about that when I was watching her, like she's the voice of the demon that's inside of uh, Reagan. And it's like, and she had those kind of, when she was yelling a few times, I want to, you know, she had that kind of to her. And I was like, okay, cool. And Franco said that she liked to have a drink on set every once in a while. So she had that cool, you know, and yeah. And, and like she had brown hair and everybody that came in, he had a blonde or redhead, black hair. And she was the like dirt brown kind of, she was like part of the, part of the castle. And he said, she will always be here. So she's like part of that part of the environment she is the system that is broken is is her you know yeah she's got the brown you know the brown uh, warden uniform and everything uh well, it's funny that you said that about the drinking i i i read somewhere that for the exorcist she had quit drinking and smoking like clean uh but then it came time to do it and she had it was just like basically one setting in the recording booth and she said that she brought a bottle of Jack Daniels, a carton of cigarettes, and just went to town and let it all out. You know what I mean? And it's funny because that was my first exposure to her in The Exorcist. And what a, that voice, you'll never forget it. And um, anytime she's in another movie, like I saw a short, little, many years after I saw The Exorcist, I saw Touch of Evil. And then she, she's in that. And then she's like, you know the Mary Jane, right? And I heard that. I'm like, oh, my God. What is that voice? It's like this terror. You feel this terror in your heart. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's Pazuzu. That's yeah. Pazuzu. You know what I mean? Um, but she's got a really amazing career with Orson Welles, you know. And, I mean, she's just a, uh, an actor's actor. And, and one of the great, I'd say, like, one of the top two actors ever. Um, anyway, I'm going off on her. But, um, no, but that's good. Was, so you're uh, saying now the next actor, um, Herbert Lom, you were getting ready to go into. Yeah, Herbert Lom, and he's another one. I, they have these scenes together, and it's almost like uh, uh, Mercedes McCambridge is, is uh, uh, you know, like, like 
fire, you know, and, and Herbert Lom is more like water, you know, you know, like, like, like he's just so, I mean, he's a great actor. And when you're doing a character and you're trying to, uh, and you're playing against someone like Mercedes McCambridge, who's so dynamic and so intense, um, you don't want to really compete with that, you know? So I love, I mean, he's a pro. He knows what he's doing. And he's not, he's not like, I don't feel, he's humble because he's not going like, oh, well, I'm not going to look like a good actor because I'm not as intense as she is. He just brings it down. And I love their parts together. It's like the, this weird chemistry uh, that doesn't quite fit, but, but fits. And it's almost like they've been pushed together by this messed up system. And, and uh, they have this strange relationship. Like, is it sexual? Is it, are they, you know, like there are those scenes with her and her uh, funny, frilly, kind of, kind of sort of frumpy night. Almost like a madam or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's what he's basically trying right. to get at, where she's like a madam in a brothel, actually. Um, and yeah, he and he's like sleeping with the sleeping with the ladies, so that totally makes sense. I didn't really think of it that way, but um, their their chemistry was great. Uh, Rosalba Neri, uh, Lady Frankenstein yeah. herself. Yeah, she's. I great. mean, she holy moly. I mean, she she she's just one of those where. Uh, She's gorgeous, but she's also not afraid to – I don't think she's very uh, concerned with looking gorgeous all the time. You know what I mean? I mean, she's just got it, yeah. and she doesn't care if she looks like shit or, you know, I, I mean, she's uh, – what do you call it? What's that word? I keep thinking of the word humble, um, but uh, – Yeah, she's just very sure of herself. She's very comfortable in her skin. She knows, like you're saying, you know, who she is and, and she doesn't, she doesn't try to dress to impress. She just, you know, I mean, cause she's the toughest one in there, but she's, I mean, so they're judging women, but she's probably the most beautiful woman in this film and she's the toughest and she carries it all the way through. And this is like the fourth Franco film or she's in four Franco films and, uh, she did lucky the inscrutable and then this, and then, uh, she's in, uh, 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 the second or the the last Fu Manchu film, and then one more after that. So yeah, so she's in four four Franco films, which I was kind of surprised because I was thinking she's only in one, you know. But uh, yeah, she's like a European goddess actress, you know. She's acted for a lot of people. She acted since like 1956, and she went up until about 1985 on uh, on her films and everything. So yeah, she acts for a lot of cool directors. Did a lot of cool, you know. Um, yeah, and then uh, Herbert Lomack, you were saying is cool. By him acting very cool in that, he's chewing up the scenery in one way while Mercedes McCambridge is chewing up the scenery in the other way. And the yin and the yang was, was true, which I didn't think about that with those two. It's like she fed him. And see, because I thought he was the governor, but then it said in the book that he ran the men's, the men's jail on the other side of the island where, where that was, you know. And uh, so that makes sense that, you know, that uh, they have that partnership. And it said before that she was a warden and then she became the superintendent. So the warden, I don't know if it was a warden of a jail or some other kind of thing, but her with that outfit and stuff, it looked like she maybe was a madam in her past career or, or she ran some kind of an underground brothel or something, you know, that kind of led her to that, had that kind of arrangement with him and everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it is, you know, we we're talking about Neri. 
and, and like uh, the, all the work that she's appeared in, uh, it, there need actors like that where it's like she'd be in El Cid and just have like a one minute scene as a dancing girl that right. you remember and you're like, wow, that that was that was really amazing. But then she in like these smaller films, she's like the star of the movie, you know. And yeah. and there's several movies like that, so it's kind of neat to see like how in the mainstream big big film world what her role is and then in the more you know kind of low budget world uh she can have more room to play around in you know and it's neat seeing her do that you know you'd never think that that dancing girl El Cid had this acting talent too you know what I mean that she's more than just you know a dancing girl you know and then we have uh, uh, Maria Schnell, which um, I knew her name, oh, yeah. but I didn't look her up. I kind of forgot who she was, but I know she's the good superintendent that comes in and tries to do the right thing. And it's almost like she's a caseworker where she tries to come in and fix the system, but the system's broken. And she kind of just has to walk away at the end and kind of give up and go out of the tunnel and go back into, into the water, you know. But uh, what other films has she done? Well, I remember she was in Superman. She was one of the uh, high order, like in the opening when it's in. Uh, oh yeah, it's okay. All Krypton. Yeah, yeah, she right. Was, yeah, she was one of, one of the Krypton folks. Wow. Um, she was a Swiss Austrian actor who, uh, sister of Maximilian Schell, who played. Uh, oh I shit! Who, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For the black hole, and he's done tons of movies. Maximilian Schell, he, yeah. Exactly, and and he w- he made a documentary about her in like the mid like two thousand two or something like that because she uh, she passed away and um, like I think in the early two thousands. But um, I, I think like kind of her work is a little more I don't know she she's not so remembered, but she was really huge at the time. I remember my parents are both Hungarian, uh, you know, and. Um, so they knew about her, you know, okay. the, the, she was one of those European stars that my parents would talk about, you know, but I don't really see, I, I haven't seen too many of her movies. So Maria Schnell's cool. And then we had um, Luciana Paluzzi, which I was kind of sad that she was in it for such a short amount. I mean, cause she was a good name at the time. She had probably just done Thunderball maybe a couple years before this. And, and I'm a big fan of her and to see her only in it for like 10 minutes or whatever, I was kind of let down watching this for that part, you know? Yeah, me too. You know, and, and it's weird. It's I mean, as as uh, low budget directors, we both know that um, sometimes you got to just make it work. And and I I definitely felt that in Ninety Nine Women, where all of a sudden there's that whole scene where uh, they're doing the prison escape. It, it just sidelines the film. You lose all these characters. All of a sudden, these kind of side characters become the main characters. Yeah, you know what I mean? And then they get back then they get captured and come back to the prison and it's like back to back to how it was. So I, I almost feel like she only had like five days or, or whatever and they got what they got and they couldn't do more with her. Well, in uh the girl from Rio episode, I ended up talking about uh kind of the story behind that. So basically uh the scenes where Maria I mean where um Maria Rome and uh, let's see, uh numbers um 97, 81, and 99, the three escape. Um, Elisa Montez, Valentina Godoy, and Maria Rome. Okay, so those three actors were in The Girl from Rio. Um, there's a scene in The Girl from Rio where they have to wait for the big Mardi Gras uh, uh, parade. So 
Franco ended up shooting early and wrapping up uh, one week early, and they had a one-week break. So for the one week, they ended up filming, 90, uh, writing 99 Women in one week, and then filming it that second week, or no, filming it, writing it Monday through Friday, and then filming those scenes Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and part of Monday, and then got back into filming The Girl from Rio. So all that footage of them in the jungle, breaking out, meeting up with the guy, getting attacked by the prisoners, and all that stuff, and until they're caught, right when she sees the boat and he turns around that's all new but all the stuff in the footage that was all shot during the from the girl from rio which was shot before this so he shot that whole sequence first finished the girl from rio and then went back and filmed all the them arriving at the at the jail all the jail stuff and stuff and then the end that's why it looks kind of disjointed you know for that part talk about multitasking right yeah and like being a filmmaker you learn that you're like dude that's the fucking way man like i love how he has the back pocket takes the time instead of them just sitting there wasting the producer's money they're like hey i got this idea let's do this this will be our next thing and you just do it without thinking and you have everybody there and instead of just sitting there and you know because everybody's getting paid anyway so why not make something else and they all agreed to it and they fucking did it and that became, yeah well like, why waste women. time yeah yeah and, and like 99 women was a huge film like that was huge on the drive-ins and that spawned so many prison movies like we were talking about the more hardcore ones you know this is 1969. You see a little breasts and there's really no pubic areas or anything like that. It's just all strictly breasts and a little bit of whipping and stuff, but no hardcore, you know, torture and stuff like that with the exploitation, the uh, Nazi stuff and the exploitation films that followed this, which are kind of the same genre, the same formula, you know, them instead of being tied up in a prison, they're tied up in a, in a monastery or a, or a Nazi camp. And it's just, it's, the same shit you know so yeah and, it, and it's always kind of cool to see the movies you know like i mean halloween started the slasher craze so all the the formula wasn't set in stone yet you know it, it hadn't been done a million times and it's always kind of neat to go back to the the thing that kind of sparked it all you know and i feel like 99 women is really cool because it really sparked that 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 a very you know uh lascivious genre uh but it's there's more art to it than some of the stuff that came, came later. You know, I mean, the photography oh, yeah. is, the photography is really nice and oh, there's great actors shots. and great acting. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the and beginning, Alicante, like the first five right? minutes, like the first five minutes, there's like five or six beautiful shots when they're arriving and you see the, the rocks of the castle and them coming in and the way it's photographed. And it's just really, really beautiful stuff, you know? Yeah, and I love how it bookends, you know, where it starts with them coming to the island and it's and then the the last scene is very similar. And uh oh I gotta say, one of the things that I love about this movie so much is that um the whole darn thing comes together in the last two or three scenes. You know? It's like you're watching it, you're engaged, you're interested, it keeps your attention, but then it's also like, Well, where's this going? What's this going to do? How's it going to, you know, but then, you know, spoiler alert, but at the end, you know, the, the, the whole bit where um, Maria Shell tries to uh, stop the prison uprising and the girls don't listen to her, you know, and uh, she realizes that she can't do anything. She's powerless. And then she leaves in shame. Right. And just those, those shots of her making eye contact with the prisoners, you know, as she's leaving the island 
unable to do anything. And Roselle Benary's look, where she's just kind of insolent. Yeah, you know, she's just like, yeah, yeah, you tried, but you can't. I mean, it's really, it's heavy. It's heavy and it's beautiful. And how, like, you know, you try to help, but it doesn't always help. You know, sometimes it makes it worse, you know? And, um, yeah, and that's know. almost I thought, like. I thought that it, it, uh, uh, I'm sorry, finish it. I'm sorry for interrupting. Oh, no, 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 not at all. But it's, it makes for a very potent f- emotional finale. And uh, that's, that's where it's at. We, when you can feel something, you know, you've been grabbed by the power of cinema, you know? Yeah, and that kind of goes back to what you were saying before about the juvenile delinquent films. It's almost like the snobby students and like the teacher finally gives up and leaves in the end and she walks past the students outside like on recess or at break and they're all kind of standing there looking at her or something telling her, yeah, you know, we won, not you, even though they lose because they're still tortured and beaten and ran terribly and everything. But they're so used to that system that that's how they want to live and they take it as their home, you know? Yeah, it's life. Yeah. So, um, see anybody else that we want to talk about? Um, yeah, we have, like I said, the, the three actors, uh, Maria Rome, um, Valentina Godoy, and um, Elisa Montez from The Girl from Rio. So they're the three that do the jailbreak at that. Um, we had a lot of uh, – we had the cool guy that helped the women that helped the women escape there toward the end. He had the cool mustache that was shaved in the middle. I thought that guy looked Yes, cool. and that, guy, that guy's voice, he, his voice was done by this dude uh, – okay – Remember for your eyes only um, when, when Blofeld gets dropped into the furnace, you know, um, his voice was Blofeld. Uh, He he did, he's done tons of voices for James Bond movies. Like, I mean, he, he died within the last 10 years or something. And I mean, he just has this insane list of credits. I don't, I don't think the actor, um, I mean, he's act, he acts as well, but he was mainly one of those guys where, okay, uh, and he would do like five different characters in one movie. You know what I mean? Um, just their voices. Right, so right. Uh, I noticed that. Yeah, I remember that guy. Yeah, I totally remember the, that. That's oh, totally cool. wait, Jason, one thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, what? Okay, the one real bum note in this movie for me is that, snake killing scene how, how did you yeah. feel about that yeah i know it's funny well looking at it you know when like say i try to look at it as two ways looking at it like i was a teenage kid you're like wow like this is like a mondo movie where you're seeing a real animal get killed and then you get older and you have fucking sympathy and feelings and you turn into a human and stuff and you're like <laughs> wow that's totally unnecessary why'd you fucking have to do that but on the other hand maria uh roma that is a fucking badass to be like grabbing that snake by the head like she's like pretty tough and she like grabs that snake and the other chick pulls out that like um little switchblade knife and starts like you know cutting it and stuff and that was like totally totally crazy you know but uh yeah yeah, yeah no I, that totally jumped out of nowhere you know i mean it shows that they're tough and what they have to go against you know and they're like cutting the head off the, or trying to stab the snake but yeah it's i don't know totally unnecessary and yeah you see it now you're like holy shit that's totally like animal cruelty and you know i don't know that's funny why how they got away. Well, but that was probably before a lot of the animal people on, on set watching and making sure that shit wasn't going down, you know, killing of animals and tripping horses and that type of shit, you know, like they used to do in the, in the cowboy films and such, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But that, 
that that seemed to shock the hell out of me, you know, because I mean, it is a rather tasteful film. And then, I mean, rather, you know, I, I guess well, by yeah. tw- 2021 standards, but uh, but that scene, it's just like holy shit, and it's so it's so common in in so many European films. Um, so so, and I wonder if, if this kind of started it off, you know, because like I mean, Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferrix, all those movies. I mean, they have. Uh, uh, tons of that junk in it you know so it's weird how yeah well no that's funny you said i didn't really catch that angle but yeah because like the mondo movies like mondo kane and and those that was like 65 or six or four maybe somewhere around there maybe 67 at the latest and that's definitely before this so they could have thrown that little deal in there because frank i noticed watching his films he likes to cash in on whatever is kind of popular like he used a lot of karate in like some of his 70s and 80s films and like you know yeah. he liked karate and he had some people do karate moves and you're, uh, just out of nowhere he just put a karate scene in his thing or or certain things that he would just think that was popular at the time and i think they might have just thrown that in there as like an extra little set piece a little shock thing like a jungle mondo thing you know but yeah that was no, totally right. totally unexpected when you've seen that as well you know yeah, those were different times. It wasn't now where you can you can pause everything and analyze everything. You know, you have all the media immediately accessible. There, there. You might have, someone might have remembered a scene like that from Mondo Kane, and then uh, you know you see this again, and uh, uh, you know it's not like recorded. It's not expected to stay there. You, you know, so they keep right. coming back to something something awful like like killing a. A beautiful snake, man. It's a beautiful yeah. animal. And you know, it's probably you know, like I was thinking about that while I was watching it, I was wondering if like that was a snake that was like from an animal farm or like something that you know, but also too where they were at, I guess I think it was like Portugal or Spain, I'll have to look and see where this is filmed. But you know, that could have just been something that somebody caught that day and that they sold to them, you know. On the other hand, I thought, well, you know, that snake would have probably been cut up and fed for stew for somebody later that day, so they probably just killed it and then ended up cutting it up and using it and feeding people or whatever. That's what I hope to happen if it did have to happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah, me too. And it's death was recorded for posterity. So, yeah, you know what I mean? It's like the snake is immortalized. We're still talking about the snake, right? Yeah. And then, of course, there's a you know graphic, well, not graphic, but graphic for its time, rape scene of the redheaded woman at the end when she escapes and the, like, wild men are, like, jungle, you know, like, animals, and they attack her and descend on her and that's another thing that was really common in these films. And as time goes by, that's less of a thing in film. Well, I mean, there's still I spit on your grave and all that and, and newer incarnations of that, that still do that stuff. But, but yeah, that's something that's going by the wayside as well. I think in time, you know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The dialogue that you see on some of these uh, boards, you know, like on Facebook and everything, you know, where, where that consciousness is like, I was just looking at one for a sleepaway camp, you know, and it was it's interesting you know cuz uh, you know folks are horror fans are discussing it and saying well this is this is a bit problematic you know what's what's the deal with this you know and uh it's it's neat to see these things transform over time as public consciousness sort of sort of shifts you know i welcome it you know what i mean i feel like yeah. i'm always open to new ways of looking at things and uh you know, I see a lot of people kind of digging in their boots and being like, no, it's like this. And if you don't see it this way, uh, you know, it, it's uh, there's always many ways to, to slice a chunk of cheese. Yeah, you know, like, like on my end, like I think things should never be altered. They shouldn't cut out scenes of past movies. They shouldn't cut out dialogue or something. I mean, it was already made. It, it's, it's of its time and that. 
And but moving forward, people should choose whether they want to recreate that or not. And if you don't recreate it, then that's then the problem solved. If you want to keep continuing on that path, then that's it's one thing. But you know, like the little rascals, for instance, like they shouldn't cut all those for kids to see because there's a lot of great stuff in it, and there's some some bad themes and some bad prejudice stuff and jokes and things that are definitely you know not great for kids nowadays and it's definitely prejudice and racist but there's so much good stuff and you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater type mentality too where you just you can't just throw it all away you know just for that one sake you know you're getting yeah. rid of a lot of good art and, and entertainment and everything as well you know yeah it's complicated it's very, yeah. very complicated Plus, you got to think of it's coming from a hateful place and, and everything compared to, like, you know, Birth of a Nation or something compared to... I mean, there's just... That's that's a whole other, you know... All these films like that have, you know, the views of society as it changes. But, yeah, it's just, you know... It's whether to keep progressing or, or like we're talking about, moving forward and, and doing better and, and, you know... Still using elements, but changing things, you know. And, and sometimes, you know, it's like when you... You know, and it, like when I first started filmmaking, I always thought... And then I went into a lot of nudity in my films later on, but it was, I was always taught that, you know, an emphasis on nudity is a uh, lack of imagination, where if you're don't have a large imagination, you rely on the nudity to kind of get you by where if you, where you, the more like also speaking on radio compared to speaking on satellite, you know, the more other words you have to use instead of saying the one easy word, instead of saying fuck, you know, if you can use five other words instead of that, it makes you more creative and, to have a slight hindrance or whatever, whatever, however you view to see it makes you figure out different ways. And that's part of being creative as well. And I think, I think that's kind of a good thing in time, especially like with Franco, with his censorship. I mean, he kind of worked around that and made some really good art. And I've seen things where he puts out one version and it's a little censored and it's good compared to where he'll put all the hardcore inserts and a lot of nudity and stuff. And it kind of dilutes the product, you know, like the other side of the mirror wasn't, was one like that where he changed it. And I think the, the original form was more beautiful than than after he added all the hardcore stuff afterwards you know yeah you make a really good point like uh like like in a movie like uh, alfred hitchcock's notorious i think like a person couldn't kiss for more than like one second and there's a scene with uh, Cary grant and um um ingrid bergman where they have this kiss scene where he's working with the restraints but they just kind of keep kissing each other, kissing each other, yeah. kissing each other. And it goes on forever. And it feels like a five-minute kissing scene, you know? And, and it's very sexy and almost mystical, you know? And he creates something really amazing out of those limitations, you know what I mean? So uh, I do – me too, like when I, when I started making – well, more like when I, when I hit my – early 20s and stuff and i'm like oh wow i can do gore and nudity and yada yada you know but now as i'm approaching 50 i'm more like backing off and i, I want to make it more like a hitchcock film where you don't see the stuff you know you don't see the sex you don't see the violence you know um and it's all like in so many movies it's so much more powerful when you see the emotional effects of violence than the violence itself you know because that's what you end up living with the violence it goes by in a few oh, yeah. seconds, but then you got to deal with the ramifications of this of this behavior, you know. So it's cool, you know. It's nice getting older. Yeah, I know. It definitely makes you kind of go back to a different way. Not a different way of thinking, but it makes you go back to some of your earlier ways of thinking when you're younger, you know, in, in a different way of – and then having experience after that to kind of like – like you're saying, pull back a little bit and kind of – 
like it's almost like taking a rock instead of throwing it as hard as you can into the water and seeing the big splash you want to kind of skip it across the surface and like see the ripples and just watch that ripple go through and, and it's the same it's just and you're still doing the same thing it's just how you approach it you know yeah nice analogy jason thank you very much thank you thank you but uh yeah so i mean so all the actors on this are, are really really great um the location's cool the castle in the beginning uh he used that for the last um, Fu Manchu film. That was the uh, stock shot for Fu Manchu's castle. And it was also in, I think, Dracula, one of the Dracula films he did later, Dracula and Frankenstein, one of those two films. He uses that. And he uses that location quite a few times with, uh, in his films. Um, I'm going to jump over here first before I kind of talk about the film uh, to the Franco list that I always talk about every film. Um, this film definitely starts off with a body of water. Um, I was happy to see the sailboat is quite important in this film. You have the boat bringing the prisoners to the island, and in the very end, the sailboat by itself. And to me, Jess Franco, to me, the sailboat in all of his films represents a voyage and also freedom in this. It's the freedom to getting into this thing and going away. And it's like, if you watch all of his films, he always has a sailboat in there, and a sailboat's an important part of his film, so... And this, it was, and this, I don't know, this might have been his first one. I'm kind of going back, watching his earlier stuff. And this is one of his first where that's a big part of his thing, you know. Um, so um, so he has that. He has body of water and sailboats. Um, dancing. There's definitely a dance scene in here with uh, Rosal Benieri. He talks about her past where she was a stripper. And that scene reminded me of um, Vampiro's Lesbos later on with the candelabra and the stripping and the club. Um, had that kind of a look and that. And then you see that she was uh, um, a dancer or a hooker or something. She kind of talks about it. And that woman uh, tries to set her up and doesn't want her talking to the other man. And they kind of wrestle with the gun. And the gun goes off. And that woman's killed. And uh, so that's why she ended up going to prison. So you see uh, the dancing with that. She's dancing with that guy, Bob, uh, which I figured you like that part. <laughs> The guy that she's with uh, <laughs> is Bob. She's like, I don't want you looking at Bob, she said. Uh, uh, palm trees. There is palm trees and jungle sound effects when they're escaping uh, at the end. Um, I talk about the sheepskin rug and the masturbation with a sea item. Those are on the Irwin C. Dietrich, the 15 or 16 films he did with him. So that doesn't relate to this. Um, red lights. There is red lights in this. There's red lights when uh, the stripping scene I talked about with the candelabra, they show a red light on her, and there's a red light in another scene. Um, chained up women. There's definitely in the end, um, Maria Rome and the other gal escapes are chained up at the end, and that's a prominent image they use on a lot of the cover art later on, um, even though the chained up part's really minimal. It's only like five minutes toward the end. Um, um, Lena's magic tongue. Well, uh, Lena Romay is not in this, so Lena doesn't get to use her magic tongue in this film. <laughs> Too uh, bad. Yeah, I know. Zooms um, and out-of-focus shots. There's one part where you see um, Rizal Benieri seduce um, Maria Rome, and he uses a lot of kind of zoom in and kind of goes out of focus on them and in focus. And that's another thing that was kind of troubling to me. We're talking about that. He ends up using like the mentality of, of rape where it's like, they're submissive, but once they accept it, then it becomes a romantic thing. And he uses soft romantic music and he shoots it really soft in like a lovely setting. And I don't know. I mean, that's me. That was kind of like, uh, you know, like under 
as as we advance and, and get more mature. I don't. Know, I, I kind of saw that in a, in a negative sense, you know. Watching, yeah. It. I don't know, but but it was of its time, you know. That's just how he viewed it. Trying to make it titillation where it shouldn't have been. Um, but then it also worked because you had Herbert Lom as the voyeur, which was the audience, and he was watching and getting closer. And then he finally entered the shot and it cut, you know. So. Oh, hey, Jason. Um, yeah. well, one thing I wanted to add to that, I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I had the same feeling about the, s- the scene that you mentioned, but uh, I had a friend who was in jail, and he said the best sex he ever had was in jail. So, yeah. well, yeah. I, you know what I mean? I don't know. No, yeah, I've never I, been I mean, in jail. I've never had sex in jail. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and I guess if both parties are, are are into the into the rhythm and into the game, then more more power to them, you know. But as a as a Franco observer, what I observed was, uh, <laughs> yeah, by observation and report was this. So, yeah, 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 it doesn't line up. Doesn't line up. Yeah, yeah, you kind of see it on that site. You're like, okay, you know, um, and okay, um, mirror shots. Yeah, I, he doesn't really use a lot of mirror shots in this, from what I can remember. Uh, really, mirrors don't really f- are an important part of this. But- oh, there's a, there's a scene where Herbert Lom, when he first comes in, and he's he's got a scene with Mercedes McCambridge where he looks in the mirror, and it's like this weird, tiny little mirror. Oh, yeah, you're right. And there's all. fur all over it. So it's a very minor, very minor mirror, but that's the only mirror thing I remember from, from the movie. That's interesting, too, the fur around the mirror. I wonder if that has to do with the women, like he has the... the uh, a vagina mirror because there's also he has a lot of birds in cages like the women birds like an english term and the birds in the cage and then also too when uh, maria rome is talking to um, maria chanel at the end and she's going to drop the charges against her the cage by maria rome the door of the cage is open and there's no bird in that cage i thought that was yes. a touch. i don't know if you caught yes, that. yes i noticed that too yeah, yeah. I was like, okay cool one. that's yeah. pretty artistic dude you got a little symbol going there very cool you know it's very very cool I don't know. yeah you know, that was a nice touch. And then lastly, um, or two things, um, mind control. Um, there's a mind control element where the mentality maybe of like the system that we talk about, how they're kind of mind controlled into the system of they're just going to stay there and, and that's how it's always going to be and they can't break it and this is the way it is. That is a mind control, you know, of that, I think. And then also last, uh, fish tank. Uh, I don't think there's fish tank, but like I said, there's bird cages. So that kind of took the place of the the fish tanks you know but uh yeah so that was that on that um some notes i kind of brought up watching this um let's see yeah it starts off with um you kind of see like a dead animal on the beach like when it first starts off that was kind of a cool touch of a real downbeat like no hope kind of a omen of things to come you know dead on the beach this is part of nature this is time passes you know um, that location where all the rocks are and stuff, he shot quite a few films there. I believe uh, She Killed in Ecstasy, there's some scenes where they have all those rocks. And uh, I think that's a Lisbon. I'll have to look afterwards when I do my research for this and, and, and tell you guys everything of, of that area. But, but that's a really cool area. Um, uh, let's see. There's an old sailboat on the land, which you see in the beginning. Uh, there's a man on the rocks waiting on the boat for the women going to prison for the Castle of Death, they called it. Um, this, uh, yeah, the castle doubled in many Franco films, uh, is Fu Manchu's castle, like I said, and, 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 uh, Dracula films, Frankenstein with those, um, starts off with great music. The day I was born, uh, that was, a yeah. really, 
And also, yeah, cool, cool font on the credits and a really cool tune. Kind of reminded me of something like Tarantino would maybe take that vibe from later on, you know, that, that one song played through. And it played through a few times, but it didn't overplay. And I think the parts where it played were really well, and it fit. You know, it wasn't milked too much or anything, you know. What did you think I agree that song? so much. I, I, that song just ended, lended such a, a lovely feel and vibe to that movie, you know, because it's almost like the, the song itself kind of mirrors like the call and response sort of, uh, you know, working on the chain gang yeah. kind of yeah. thing. And um, uh, I love how uh, it indicates the, the hope Right there, like that little bridge part where uh, then I heard the wind and the breeze. You know, it, it, it lifts, it lifts up, but it also comes back down to the, you know, since the day I was born, it's been like this. You know, uh, yeah. it's a great song. I, I looked up the lady who sang it was, uh, 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 God, I forgot what some of her credits are, but she's she's interesting. You might want to let Barbara McNair, I think, was her name, but. Uh, uh, she had she had somewhat of a career, but I don't I don't remember unfortunately. Yeah, it yeah, says here um, a far more likelier contender, in my opinion, is the Black American singer singer Barbara McNair, who appeared in Franco's Venus and Furs in 1968 and sang the film's theme song. Listen to McNair sing Barbara Streisand's "Where Am I Going" on the Dean Martin Show in 1967. Her phrasing, tone, and vocal power are a very close uh, fit to the day I was born. So yeah, they're saying it was her, even though there was other credited singer to it. So yeah, you were right; that was probably her. Interesting, but but you really nailed it too with that that uh, Tarantino vibe. Like, I mean, it's totally like when that font comes up, ninety nine women, and that song is playing, and just the way the actors are moving, and Mercedes McCambridge making her entrance. It's total like like I mean, yeah, and it's hard to capture that kind of that kind of vibe, but it's also really neat to see, you know, and I think for um, people, you know, we're all on our cinematic journey. We're all discovering where things come from and, and nothing comes out of a vacuum. It's kind of neat to see where these things really originated from, you know? Yeah. Cause it has that same style and that same feel where like, you're, like we were talking about how it has that, has that sting of, of something that is familiar later on, you know, and that probably don't get the credit for it that, that he should. Um, so, yeah, so you had a blonde, uh, number 99. You had a redhead, number 98, and black-haired gal, number 97. Um, you had uh, Superintendent um, Thelma, and she's walking down the stairs, which is a cool shot of Mercedes McCambridge, where she's coming down the stairs. That's another thing. You had uh, Soldat Miranda coming down the stairs, and she killed an ecstasy, and he likes to shoot a lot of women coming down stairs as their entrance, which is kind of a common thing, but... Um, and he had her with the brown hair, and the other guard had brown hair. And later on, he used that in a lot of his uh, women in prison movies, especially uh, Wicked, uh, Wanda the Wicked Warden. The two main guards under Elsa, or under Wanda, had, had brown hair and kind of stout. You know, they're almost like twins, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, so, and then also, too, with the numbers, he used that a lot later in his films, uh, um, Barbed Wire Dolls, when... Um, Monica Swim is like telling him you are just a number and, and you're not a name and this and that. So they, he, he used that theme quite a bit. Also, too, the prison garb, the blue, the blue shirt with just the underwear that was in Barbed Wire Dolls, Women Behind Bars, and uh, uh, a few of his other prison movies he did later on. He uses that same garb because uh, 
with Lena Romay and uh, Martin Steedle and that, because I have a lot of pictures and we always see that. And as we watch these films, we notice, oh, there's the same outfit. So he's a big fan of just the giant shirt with just the underwear, you know, underneath, you know, which I don't yeah. think is regulation, you know, but, <laughs> but it was a different time, you know. Um, so, yeah, so we had. Um, you save money on costumes, you know. Exactly. Oh, and there's a really cool, nice shot of uh, after the first woman dies, they're carrying the coffin along those rocks going off by the sea. And we're talking about style, and that was like a really fucking cool shot, I thought, of the two women carrying the coffin of that woman after they're taking her away in the beginning. Um, a lot yeah. of good style right in the fucking top. Um, and then, uh, let's see, there's uh, Governor Santos. He had his way with a blonde woman they, they talk about. They're kind of introducing his character. And then... Uh, the woman that was in the coffin was killed by being abused by um, Mars, um, McCambridge's character. And so they had talked about that's like the third woman to die on the island before they all show up. And so she's being investigated by, you know, the doctor like, hey, why are these people dying? Two, you reported and one, you didn't report, you know. And she says, well, she was already dead. So you're just a doctor. You know, you can't do anything about it. So they send the other superintendent to investigate one that we talk about and she really is powerless with what's going on um but uh so yeah they said oh yeah you have 99 women and she says no i have 99 troubles and that's uh you know that reminded me of that song um 99 problems later i thought that was kind of cool she's like no i have 99 troubles you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We, we do a do a little uh, uh, remix, you know. I mean, like they make the 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 recuts of the Star Wars movies, you know. Throw in throw in that tune at the end. See what it, you know. See what it looks like, you know. Yeah, no, that's totally cool. Um, so then you see, uh, there's a wide shot of the women in a row where they're working on like the chain gang with the song, and they're all kind of marching in a long line across the shot. That was another. Use a lot of cool shots of the carrying the coffin from left to right. The women all lined up along the rocks, walking in a row, getting ready to, I guess, they were getting sugar or sand or salt or something that they were mining from the, from the area, you know. Maybe it was sugar cane or something, I'm not sure. Um, so, yeah, and they had, uh, let's see, um, they had lots of cage and stuffed birds also, too. They had uh, some taxidermied birds in the, uh, um, in the superintendent's office, and uh, they had along with the cage birds, they had one or two stuffed birds. I thought was kind of cool because some of the women die. So they kind of like there forever, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, so then you had um, 76's backstory where she was a nude model, uh, the dance scene with the red light and candelabra. And then you had, um, let's see, you know, I mentioned the vampiros lesbos kind of look on that. Um, then you had uh, Zoe's girlfriend at the club. She tries to shoot her. They had a struggle, which we talked about. And um, Maria Rome, so uh, 99's backstory, she was raped um, in the sh by a bunch of men. She was picked up by a guy on a motorcycle, she says, and she was taken to a party, and these guys wear these bags on their head, and they rape her. And it starts off kind of cool where it's almost like you only see the men's shadows before you see them. And it was almost like she was raped by the shadows at first. And then they show the close-ups of the people. But before they show the people, I thought, well, it would be kind of cool if you just showed that and implied it with using just shadow effects where you'd still get across the effect without having to be gratuitous and still get that point across like we were talking about, you know. Yeah, that was a, that was a crazy scene. Uh, just uh, like these, these 
uh, shirtless men with hoods and, and like uh, these lipstick. They kind of had like lipstick where their mouth should be, like this little red mark over there. It was so it was just so strange. But I, I loved uh, the movie has such an organic feel and, and how you talk about, um, you know, Mercedes McCambridge and the Brown, like she's part of the, the landscape and everything like that. It, it was really neat how, you know, obviously these scenes were shot on in, in a studio, you know, somewhere else, probably later, you know, um, and it, and it, it, it was nice to have the film kind of break up like that. Like, like usually like a flashback scene is a little bit like, ah, I don't know, but, but, it was kind of welcome, you know, because instead of the, the kind of earthy expanse that we see in the um, prison scenes, we see the, uh, you know, it's very artificial. It's uh, all about lighting and there, there's no background. It's just black. Uh, so I thought that the kind of the conflux of the two was a uh, really, really interesting visually. And it kept, it kept you, kept you, it kept you into the movie, you know? Yeah, totally. It was something different, like you were talking about, and it kind of like you were saying. It was almost like it's almost like a chaser. You know, you have you drink a certain, you have this thing, and now it's like a nice palate cleanser or whatever. Even though it was a different thing, and then it took you back yeah. into it. You know, um, so yeah. So you had then uh, Marie um, with the open birdcage effect we had talked about, and then the jailbreak. Uh, you have uh, it was footage that was shot during the girl from Rio one week before. You had uh, the two women that killed a snake that we talked about. Um, and the lake oh there's a cool scene where they all kind of dive into this lake um lagoon with all the lily pads on it and everything where the three women where they first discover the man and the other that scene free that scene freaked me out i'm like oh my god these poor women some some creatures gonna they're gonna catch some sort of virus or or some parasites gonna get inside of them i was just like no if i would i would be on the shore i'm staying dirty (laughs) On the shore, I'm not going in that water, man. Oh, that was that was oh leeches. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, if you watch uh, Elsa the Wicked Warden, uh, my friend Eric, when we watched it, he said the same thing because there's a woman just running through. And a lot of these movies like that, even like A Virgin Among the Living Dead, he likes a big lagoon with the with the lily pads and stuff. But a lot of his films, you see these body of waters and these women just run through like on the rocks, barefooted, and you don't know if there's snakes in there or what kind of parasites or whatever you're just like wow man and some of it's pretty brave especially lena romay she'll just go forward with give you everything she's got as an actress even though she's on this but as she goes she does everything you know she'll jump out of a tree with naked or jump in a water for you as long as you know she ain't gonna get hurt and she'll, she knows her thing she she'll just do it without even asking and that's like as a director i'm like man i wish i had a lena romay in my stable oh yeah barbed wire dolls i mean is such a physical uh, such a physical feat, you know, uh, all the jump, scaling those walls and stuff. I don't, there, there's this um, movie, I forgot the name of it, darn it, but uh, Max von Sydow was the star of it. And there's this amazing scene where, uh, like, he's in jail and then he escapes from jail, kills this guy, and then goes back to jail because that's his alibi for killing this guy. Hey, I couldn't have killed him. I was in jail. And it's like this half hour sequence of him. Like there's no dialogue, but it's like, seriously, like a half hour sequence of him escaping jail. And it's like snow, nothing but snow, Nordic snow everywhere. And he's like in his underwear. He's just wearing like briefs and a white t-shirt. And it's obviously him. It's like that lanky physique, you know, and he's, I mean, it's just like, how the hell did this guy do this without getting pneumonia, you know? And, 
as a filmmaker, you know, you don't just do this once. You do this take after take after take. And, I mean, it's it's astounding, like, like what some of these actors give, give themselves over to. Yeah, where it's almost like, like, like we were talking about, too, like with Franco, like I wonder how many takes he took where he knows if you nail it in that first take, if it's something physical like that, I mean, he might do a second take as maybe a safety, but who knows if, if like, Lena jumping out of that tree, coming yeah. down bare ass, laying on her feet, jumping over the wall and stuff. Okay, we got it. We know it's here. It captured. It's in the can. Let's move on, you know. But, you know, it's good. Yeah, ask. next yeah. scene. Yeah, unless you had Kubrick or something like that where we talk about, you know, 50 or 100 <laughs> takes or whatever. And it's just like they're just raw and numb and scarred up from, you know. But if you watch a lot of these Franco films, like we were talking about with Barbara Dolls and that, if you look like Lena and them have bruises on their hips and stuff from a lot of the physical stuff they're doing on here. And, and like from and a lot of these, they did back to back. So you'll see on the next film, it's like, Oh, that's the bruise from the last film where this, this, and this she did, you know, and you just do the next thing a couple of weeks later, you're making the next film, you know? So. Yeah. And their hair's like messed up, you know, and they don't have perfect makeup. So it, I, I think it lends a, it lends a reality to, to these movies, you know? Totally. So, yeah, so we have uh, the end where they're, like, doing the escape. Um, oh, and there's a cool shot uh, I had made a mention where uh, Valentina um, Godoy, uh, number 81, the red-haired gal, she uh, has kind of like a sex scene with the guy that – so she has a boyfriend that's in the male prison, and he doesn't make it out. He was killed. So she ends up uh, – oh, yeah, this kind of goes with that rape scene too, which I was kind of weird. Like, So basically – she has sex with this other man that she finds attractive that knew the man that she liked. So she gives herself to this man. And in the end, she was the one that was raped because she was unfaithful to her boyfriend by giving herself to men. So she was punished by being raped by all these men. Like I kind of saw that in like the Catholic sense, like Franco going, okay, well I thought, well, why was she the one that was sacrificed to the mob? You know, that might've been his tinge of that. But, but there's a scene where she's with the man that helps her escape. And, um, Maria Rome is like a voyeur, kind of like um, um, uh, Herbert Long was earlier where he's watching, and now it's her turn to watch, and she kind of grasps the rock and leans forward and watches them, you know, and she's into it. And the other woman kind of wakes up and sees it and turns back to her side, goes back to sleep. She's like, oh, whatever, you know, it's no big deal. But Maria Rome was, like, fascinated by it, so she kind of made that turn where she wasn't, where she was more innocent, now she's more kinky kind of the facade which she did later in uh venus and furs and that more more so you know or actually that was probably right before this i think but so yeah so they kind of carry that whole you know justine ugd venus and furs um marquita sod voyeur the sex angle in that little touch too in that one scene we were talking about the mondo angle like this was that scene to kind of have that have that subgenre in you know yeah Um, so then, uh, let's see. So we have, yeah. So we see the palm trees. Uh, Eighty-one is raped and killed by the men. Uh, one of the three punished for taking on a new lover. I, I, I felt. Um, and then you have the sailboat at the end that they see that represents escaped. But uh, the um, Herbert Lom's character was there. And and earlier in the film, they talk about how there's a fishing village like one days away. So they already knew if somebody was going to escape where they would go to. So in the end, you know, it was pretty fruitless for them to go there because he says we've been here waiting for you and then they find them on the beach by the uh, sailboat and they're taken back and chained up and, and tortured and uh then there's a uh scene where they all 
jailbreak again where you had talked about in the beginning where all the all, all the cells open up and all the women escape and it's i don't know it it felt kind of cool it felt like what we've all been going through the last year seeing everybody marching in the streets and and breaking against the oppressors and kind of do i was like okay this is kind of cool we're kind of going through this now a little bit you know but so i i kind of had that feeling of that watching that recently you know yeah yeah it's always neat to see how the past reflects into the future and uh yeah it, it's always the same thing I mean, everything, you know, like uh, there's only like three or four stories. It's always the same thing. Yeah. You know, humans doing stupid stuff and feeling bad for it and trying to do better, but slow increments of progress. And in this film, uh, the woman who tries to help, we talked about in the beginning, she figures it's a broken system and she has to finally walk away at the end. And I always like to use wrestling terminology. So in this film, the heels go over at the end. Uh, bad guys win uh they celebrate have a drink and uh then the lady leaves dejected and everything goes on as if she never existed or never even showed up so it was totally not worth her time at all so that's yeah kinda- i love I, lo- I love films that are an exercise in futility you know where all this stuff happens and in the end it's just same as it ever was you know it's like it's like life you know exactly. and then it rings true. Yeah, and it's fun about films. The more you say things like a dream, the more you say it out loud, it kind of has a light bulb flash. You're like, oh, shit. You know, as you, you watch it and then you talk about it, then you kind of learn after talking through it. It's like makes you think of different things that you thought about subconsciously, but until you physically speak them, then it becomes a, a actual matter of, of relativity or whatever, and then, and then there it is, you know. Yeah, and that, that's what's been fun about this. I've really enjoyed this because, I, frankly, I wasn't really expecting for my mind to go off. Because I've seen this movie several times. I really like it. Uh, but, you know, in, with talking, talking to you about it, it's like, oh, I've seen, I've looked at, you know, I'm seeing it differently. And it, it, the thing's kind of uh, bubbling up a little bit more. You know, it still has some life to it, you know. So that's, uh, it says a lot about the work of art and also, how it's nice to, uh, I mean, that, that, that's, that's what's killing me about these COVID days. The, the funnest stuff is going to a movie and then talking about it. Yeah. You know, with your friends afterwards. It's so, it's so nice, you know. So, I don't know, this kind of reminds me of those days. So, thanks, Jason. Thanks for giving me these feelings again. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Bob, for, for uh, being a part of the show. And I was really happy that you approached me to, uh, to ask to say, hey, I like 99 women. Would you be interested in doing that? I'm like, hell yeah, dude, let's, 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 let's do this, you know? And, and this is cool to talk about films and, and us having the same frame of mind and the same age range and the same stuff that we're into the films and being, being creative source. It's cool to like talk about it from this angle and to kind of have somebody else appreciate things that, and shine a light on things that are maybe in the dark for other people that they can appreciate as well and, and see it from a different side, you know, which I always totally dig. And that's part of doing the show is to, really get Jess Franco's name out there to people that haven't heard about him before and to turn on new eyes and ears to, to his, to his movies and, and everything. And, and he is the man, you know, once you, once you see more of him, you kind of have a good appreciation. And I think things that are good like that, you know, like we both came from the same way where you start off not liking something. And then the things you like harder in life are the things you don't like in the beginning. You know, you kind of like, wow, what the hell is I doing? You know, you kind of realize, you know, Totally like broccoli. Used to hate that stuff. Now, <laughs> it's great, you know. Well, I'm not as open-minded as you on that. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm learning, but yeah, we'll see. But 
I think maybe so, like Franklin and broccoli, but I may be, I may be wrong. Yeah. Some things come easier than others, you know, that's true. That's maybe, true. maybe for you it's cauliflower. Who knows? Who knows? But, so, oh, oh uh, Hey, Oh yeah, go ahead. So I know on my end, I'm not shooting any films, but I am writing scripts. Um, are you doing anything creative right now on your end or uh, what do you have planned for the next, for this year coming up? You know, I had, I had kind of a, the last few years have been sort of a rough haul on me. I went through a divorce and, you know, sold my house, all this stuff, you know. Um, so it's been, I've been in a deep depression, but I just, I kind of got out of it. I started, I started shooting like a little, I've got this cheap little uh, uh, Vivitar 3D camera. Uh, and it's like a red and blue 3D. So I'm shooting like this kind of a, a modern update of the um, Richard Trenton Chase kind of story. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's sort of indirect. You know what I mean? Like if you know the story, you'll, you'll make the connection. But if you don't, it's kind of like a separate thing. But, you know, since it's Sacramento and I live in Sacramento, I'm using some of the exteriors where the actual things happened, you know. So it's, it's something, something I can just kind of – kind of it's not a big thing it's very small so it's called i eat your face nice well it's cool because uh i actually did a uh short film about a, a richard chase for a mondo sacramento but i made it a female and called it a, a ricky chase instead of richard chase and nice. uh i use um all the same factual stuff and um uh, recreated the kills and then did all that and all the research and everything so yeah so if you ever want to talk about that or have anything questions or anything definitely please feel free man because yeah definitely interesting subject and that was one of the stories since when i was a kid that i wanted to make a film about was uh, richard chase the vampire of sacramento because that was like a big part of my childhood and hearing my parents and older people talk about it so when i did mondo sacramento that was one of the first stories that i wanted to tell was the story of richard chase because it was so so freaky especially during that time frame of those few years you had a lot of the people in sacramento that were doing all that shit and it was it was really really crazy yeah it was like it was like this nexus of evil almost you know and, and just being in sacramento uh over the years i've met people who have had who'd known the victims and or were friends with uh, you know people yeah. involved and it's just uh horrific and really left a, a major you know, major mark, really terrifying, really terrifying crime. Oh, I wanted to ask you, is there, um, can one purchase your movies online or something? Yeah, you know, I've kind of like you, I've kind of like stepped back from a lot of the selling and stuff, and I usually just give them to my friends, and I have I have boxes and boxes of stuff. So uh, after we record this, if you want to send me your address or something, I'll totally send you some stuff just to send to you for being on the show. I'll PayPal you. Know. you. No, I'll don't even worry about it, dude. Some cat. Oh no, no, no my please, God. please. I, I, no, I'm That's, a firm believer in. I hear you. I hear you. What you know? Well, you know. But oh, go ahead. Oh, real quick, I just I found the guy I was talking about with the voice who played the who did the voice for the either I don't know if he was the voice or just the just the voice or the no looking at the guy I think it was just the voice Robert Rietti. Um, okay. I'll. I'll Check this guy out because once once you, it's almost like he becomes a, you know the Wilhelm scream, right? Yes, you right. The, yeah, famous. It's like famous that in all the movies. Yeah, yeah. It's like once you pinpoint this guy's voice, he's everywhere. He's wow. like in everything, you know. Yeah. So anyway, it's it's that's a, totally it's cool. A thing. Yeah, that's the thing about these podcasts. You learn something new all the time, or you learn multiple things, which is always really cool. 
but uh, but yeah, no, and and like I said, I I plan. Hopefully, I mean, we'll see how all this vaccination goes with everybody, and hopefully, we all get our shots. Hopefully, by this summer, but I don't know. We'll see if how this goes. I don't know. I thought summer, but now well, I don't know. We'll see. You know, I'm I'm the same boat as you. We want to be safe and and be alive and and keep putting out stuff. So we just have to play it by ear as guess best we can. You know, but but it still doesn't give us a reason not to write and to do things with out other people if we can get away with it, you know, like this podcast no, is a good exercise, you know, and part of No, it. that's good. I think that's really important to, to, to find something that, to, that was a huge part of a problem for me where I wasn't, I wasn't engaging in any creativity and that was just making me worse, you know, but I couldn't have, I didn't have the energy. So it's just like after like forcing yourself and forcing yourself and forcing yourself, finally it's like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm back, baby steps, you know, like small, just small, just shooting like for 20 minutes in my apartment, you know, just a little thing like that really did a lot to, to pull me back up, you know, so I'm glad you're keeping busy. Yeah, no, that's the thing is like you're talking about forcing yourself because like I would do that every week and I say, okay, I'm gonna write a little bit of my script and then I'll sit there and I'll like write down the story treatment of like 25 things. Okay. Now this happens and just two or three sentences. And then this happens and this happens. And then I'll do like 30 or maybe 15 or 20 things. And then I can kind of see the first half hour, 45 minutes or whatever without writing all the dialogue. So, but just getting that basic skeleton frame and then I'll walk away and be like, wow, good. I already kind of figured out the first half of my movie. I know what's going to happen, who the main people are, all these characters are introduced. This is what's going to happen to them and blah, blah, blah. Then I can go ahead and do other things wherever if I want to, but you have to always keep advancing that every little bit. And if I go, well, shit, I didn't write the whole thing. Well, it was more than I had yesterday, so that's 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 a good thing too. And you have to just better than it was yesterday, and just keep every day a little bit, a little bit, you know, and or however you have the energy to do it, you know. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like like if you're doing it consistently. Uh, even if it's just a little bit every day or every other day, it's amazing how this stuff piles up and you actually, you actually get somewhere with it. Even though during that, you know, 20 minutes or half hour that you're editing, it feels like you're just hitting your head against the wall. Well, no, you're, you're, yeah. you're making something, you know, like totally. little ants, you know? Yeah. And it's almost like you have to be doing it to open up those receptors to have other things bring to you. Like, I've had so many ideas of script. I have literally five or six different scripts over the last two months. And I'm like, God, another idea, another idea. And it will like talk to me and I hear it and this and that, it goes through and I'll just, and I take it in, I accept it and I go to it and I do it out and then I'll put it aside and a new thing. And it's like, I'll feel guilty because it's like, these are new girls. And then, but no, I'm supposed to pay attention to this woman, but no, this woman's coming in here and she's talking into my ear and this is the new one. And wow, it's the new fascination, you know? And it's like, you have to keep cultivating all these, you know, scripts and everything. But, but I'd rather be overindulged than underindulged and be dry, you know. So that's always. Oh yeah, too much is always better than not enough, for yeah. sure. And that's why I dig Franco too. Getting into watch all these films, you see all the stuff he was doing and just doing back pocket films and shooting two, three films at once and writing stuff on the fly and coming up with things. And that's really the way to do it, man. Because you're just you're accepting all that as it comes to you and. Of course, you have a quality control. Some things get made, some things don't get made, and you're not doing everything, but but you're still, you know, giving yourself over to that force and letting it take you, you know. So yeah, yeah. I think about you know, like we, we talked a lot about Franco, you know, shooting like five different movies at the same time. It's like uh, in our in our culture, you know, 
ADD is kind of like a maligned thing. But I feel like all any great director, Steven Spielberg, Kubrick, any of them, you got to be AD to yeah. wrangle all these all these different elements. I mean, I feel like these are all folks who, in, in normal society, wouldn't function that well. But as a film director, where you got to deal with all these crises, you know, like twenty at a time and yada yada, uh, they they do very well in those in those uh, arenas. Yeah, well, most definitely, most definitely. Um, so are, are any of your, uh, short films or trailers or anything on YouTube or on Vimeo or anything for anybody to check them out or. Yeah, I've got a YouTube, I've got a Vimeo, I've got a little launching pad website where you can kind of access everything. It's, it's very low fi intentionally, but, uh, it's, uh, RZM dot hot dot M as in me E. So RZM dot hot dot me. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've got stuff in there, uh, um, but uh, I don't know. I'm always thinking of the next, like, what? I, my problem is I, I'll, I'll make something and then I'm focused on that thing, and as soon as I'm done with that thing, I'm onto something else, you know. And then then that last thing is just kind of left behind, you know. So I, I, I'm really trying to utilize this time where uh, I'm not really creating so much to try to get into uh, uh, presenting some sort of a, a vi- you know, like trying trying to do something with the work that I'm creating rather than just amassing this, you know, filmography that that nobody knows exists. No, I'm I'm exact. We're we're the same cloth, man. I'm the same way. I'll do the next film and then on to the next thing. And uh, and my past films have suffered because I haven't taken the time. It's like I was talking about with the women thing. It's always the next relationship, the next relationship, and I really should slow the relationships down and pay more attention and, and present my product afterwards and play it more. But, you know, like I always think you have to always look ahead, look ahead, because, like, it's like I think about these singers, and it must suck to sing the same song, you know, even though you're making money off it and, you, and that's your business, but if you have to say that guy has five songs and he sings them for 20 years, like that must be torture to not – create and have everybody and you want people to like your old films there's people that'll tell me oh i like your first film or somebody says i like your 12th film you know but you know that's always great and i say they always say what's your favorite film with well, a film i have yet to make is a lot of creative people's answer and and I'm, i feel the same way but it's just like you have to keep looking ahead because when you go back and start appreciating your older stuff too much then you slow down i've caught that with myself you know i start cataloging my stuff then i go oh shit now i'm looking back, I got to keep looking forward, you know, and, and that's one thing I've kind of caught myself on. Oh yeah. I relate, I relate completely. And for me, it's, it's almost like uh, what's it called? Uh, the fun of uh, being an amateur, you're following the fun and what you love. Yeah. And that's what I love. I, I love making something out of nothing. So the process of the ideas, the writing, making it and editing it and then finishing it, that's it. I don't want. I don't want to like be a secretary or whatever. You know, like call and play. You know, emailing places and uh, showing them clips and asking them to. Oh, will you review my? You know what I mean? Like, like, right. like. I feel uncomfortable in that in that regard. It's not fun for me. It's making the stuff is is the big fun. You know. So whatever. Like I said, you know, even even if we die and nobody ever knows about us. We led a life, uh, a very fun life, making cool stuff. Yeah, most most definitely. And like and like you were saying too, it's like to me, I totally agree. Like that's the thing I used to tell people is like, 
the coolest thing is like seeing it on the screen the first time because you're like, this was in my head. Now it's like there and everybody can see it. And this was just here. Now it's, now it's out there. And that's, that's the whole joy is getting it out of you and into something else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. This has been a lot of fun, Jason. Yeah. That was very cool talking to you. So uh, thanks again for joining us. This was episode 23, 99 women with special guest Bob Moritz. Uh, this was film 20 from Jess Franco and we both dug it and tell you to check it out. Um, I watched the uh, unrated director's cut, the regular one anchor Bay. How did you watch it? Did you watch it on disc or on YouTube or? I watched it on disc. Uh, I watched it twice. I watched it on disc. It was the blue underground 2004, 2005, I think. Yeah. Um, unrated director's cut, same thing. And Good. I watched it on YouTube this morning and it was the same. It was the same one. Yeah. I also have the, cause I have the DVD. I also have this, um, x-rated cut but i was gonna watch that first but then i read about it and it's just basically like a bunch of hardcore inserts and it's really not a good version the director's cut's a lot better than the x-rated cut because it's it's just sexual stuff and it's with none of the actors it's just body doubles and it doesn't really they just flesh out some of the scenes more no pun intended and and Well, it's funny, like, on the, on the DVD that I have, there was, uh, uh, there were, like, three deleted scenes, and, oh, they're, like, the flashbacks. They're, like, the flashbacks, and then there was this one flashback for Rosal Boneri's character, yeah. and it, it was, like, 20 minutes long, and it's not even her. It's none of the, it's not, it, it looks like it was shot, like, three or four years later, like, the fashions are different, you know, it, it it was just bonkers. So yeah, yeah it, that's it, what this neat, is. I think when a movie exists, yeah, I think it's neat when a movie exists in different forms like that, but it, it kind of brings it down a little bit when, when there's so much excess flab that it doesn't need. Yeah. It's like too many cooks spoil the broth. You know, it's, it was good before and then you just keep adding shit. And it's like, Nope, you just spoiled it. So that's, you know, yeah yeah we we didn't need the coriander come on yeah i know just keep it how it was it was great so alrighty. well thank you again for joining us and signing off and uh let's hope this year we uh have some good creativity and great happiness and uh let us all be successful all right Adios. If you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got the rap patrol on the cat patrol. Foes that want to make sure my cask is closed. Rap critics says money cash holes. I'm from the hood, stupid. What type of facts are those? If you grew up with holes in your zappatoes, you celebrate the minute you was having dope. I'm like, fuck critics, you can kiss my whole asshole. If you don't like my lyrics, you can press fast forward. Got beef with radio, if I don't play they show. They don't play my well, I don't give a shit, so Rap Max try to use my black ass So advertisers could give them more cash for ads Fuckers, I don't know what you take me as Or understand the intelligence that Jay-Z has I'm from rags, the richest niggas, I ain't dumb I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one Hit me 99 pounds, but a bitch ain't one. If you have a girl problem, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 pounds, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me. Years 94, and my trunk is raw. And my rear view mirror is the motherfucking law. Got two choices, y'all. Pull over the car, or bounce on the devil, put the pedal to the floor. 
trying to see no holiday chase with Jake. Plus, I got a few dollars, I could fight the case. So I pull over to the side of the road. I heard, son, do you know I'm stopping you for? Cause I'm young and I'm black and my hat's real low. Do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know. Am I under arrest or should I get some money? Well, you was doing 55 in the 54. Uh-huh. Lost in the registration, it's the body of the car. You carrying a weapon on you, I know a lot of you are. I ain't stepping out of shit, all my papers legit. Well, do you mind if I look around the car a little bit? Well, my glove department is locked, so it's the trunk in the back. And I know my rights, so you gon' need a warrant for that. <laughs> Aren't you sharp attack? You some type of law or something, somebody important or something. I ain't passed the ball, but I know a little bit enough that you wanna legally search my shit. Well, we'll see how smart you are when the K9 comes. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me! 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. If you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me! 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. If you having girl problems, I forgot for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me! Once upon a time, not too long ago, a nigga like myself had a strong arm a hoe. This is not a hoe in the sense of having a pussy, but a pussy having no goddamn sense trying to push me. I try to ignore him, talk to the Lord, pray for him, but some fools just not a perform. You know the type, loud as a motorbike, but wouldn't bust a grape in a fruit fight. The only thing that's gonna happen is I'ma get the clapping and he and his boys gonna be yapping to the captain. And there I go trapped in the Kit Kat again. Back through the system with the riffraff again. Beans on the floor, scratching again. Paparazzi's with the cameras, snapping them. DA try to give a nigga shaft again. Half a mil for bail, cause I'm African. Oh, because the fool was harassing them. Trying to play the boy like he's saccharin. But ain't nothing sweet, but I hold my gun. I got 99 pounds, being the bitch ain't one. Hit me. 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. If you have your girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me. 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. If you have your girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me. Bitch ain't one. <laughs> you crazy for this one, Rick?